All right, so music stand is, oh, here it is. Got it, Luke. Thank you, Maddie. All right. Maddie's, no, I'm not going to make a joke. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that's cheap. That's cheap. Well, I'd love to pray. I know that tonight already feels like we've been going on for a minute, but we need the Lord. We need God to do what only He can do. And I do feel the weight in the inadequacy that no matter how eloquent or how passionate or how much I yell or cry or anything that may happen tonight, I can't do anything apart from God. So would you pray with me? I invite you to close your eyes and just, just take one minute to just recenter your heart. Just speak to the the God of the universe, and say, Father, if, if you're there, just speak to me. And if you already have a relationship, just say, God, I love you. Help me hear from you tonight. Help me hear from your word. It's one of our last sessions, so I, I really urge you just to, to just genuinely, honestly, since you're here, hey, God, would you speak to me? Give me an ear to hear what you have to say. And then now take a minute to pray for those sitting around you. Maybe there's some people who are with you, sitting near you, and you know they just don't give a rip about any of this. And just pray that God would work in their hearts, that, you, that he would capture their attention. He would break through the most hardened situation. And then would you take a moment to pray for me? I promise I'll preach better if you pray for me. Pray that God would empower me. Father, I love you. And I am so hungry for more of you. I'm so desperate for you to move and have your way. Lord, over 18 years ago, when I was 15, you moved. You opened my eyes to see that you're the great treasure I was searching for. You were the one that my soul longed for. You show me how I needed you. Would you do that same reality in every heart tonight that doesn't know you yet? And for every heart that does know you, take us deeper into your heart. Draw us near to your heart. Reveal yourself. Help me preach the truth and nothing but the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump right back into the text. Just a reminder, we left off that Jonah is vomited uh, by the giant fish onto dry land. And remember that line in the last chapter that Yahweh is a God of both the land and the sea. And this is just a repeating theme that God is not a God that is limited geographically. He's not a God of just one area or one category in life like love. He's a God that transcends all categories. He's the inventor of all. He's the author of all. He's the center of all. And he does whatever he pleases. And that's a good thing. Now we're in Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. It's going to be on the screen. Would you read out loud with me together? Then the word of the Lord. Come on, this side. Come on, come on. Okay, so just like chapter one, the message comes to Jonah again, and God is so kind. He's so kind. He gives us many chances. Aren't you grateful that God is not a God of just one chance, and then you're done? None of us would be here. God is merciful and far more patient than we deserve and far more patient than we are. And I think this time, Jonah will obey. So what does he do? Now, actually, real quick, before we get to verse 3, my, my hunch is that Jonah, as he's been slowly digested in this belly for the last three days and three nights, that the fish is likely traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles towards Nineveh. Remember how he was called 500 miles east towards Nineveh, and he goes the other direction, west, away from God's call, 1,500 miles. And though he is traveling as far as he can away from where God has for him, God does what he pleases. And he moves this, this joker across many, many leagues of sea and gets him 
close. That's, that's what I think. So now verse 3, read along with me. And, and please, this left side, come on, beat the right side. The right side is just destroying you, all right? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So uh, this city is huge, huge um, for the, the, this ancient time. And he's, he's making his way throughout all the city. And he's proclaiming a very, very simple message. Not very eloquent. Not many details. Hey, in 40 days, you guys are all done and screwed for. Thanks. That's it. That's it. That's all he says. This word that he uses, overthrow, is the same language, the same word in Hebrew that was used when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah for that entire city to be overthrown. We're not talking about repentance. We're not talking about a positive term. We're talking about absolute annihilation. Now, here's a question that I kind of touched on in the first session. How do we stomach such a God of judgment? This grumpy, so-called grumpy God, this stereotypical God of the Bible, just so angry and hateful and just wants to kill. At least that's the perspective we're told by many in our world. But here's the deal. The problem is, is that we all want a God of judgment. We all want a God of justice. We just want justice for others. Justice for our enemies. You see, the reality for all of us is we can be ruthless towards others, but have lots of reasonable excuses and justifications for why we do what we do. I'm guilty as any of us, any of you guys are. This is a classic case of how we, we can try to remake God into our own custom God. Remember, I said that last night and this morning, we are all tempted to reject or remake God. But God will only be received, the God of the Bible. See, most of us struggle. Historically, people have struggled with grasping such a God that is beyond our understanding, a God that could be just and yet merciful. See, we have no concept, no category in our life for someone to be angry and full of righteous rage for wickedness and yet simultaneously busting forth full of compassion and love and affection at the same time. Can you imagine that? We can't. We can't fathom such a being that can simultaneously be both at the max. Not okay with sin and wickedness, and yet simultaneously a love that you cannot even imagine. And yet because we, the human heart cannot fathom such a God for long, what we often do in the church historically is that we choose one side. And so maybe you grew up in a church tr tradition, or maybe you've been exposed to a church tradition where you pick just the love of God. Because we can't fathom and understand and comprehend a God of judgment. And so we're going to pick a God who just loves. And everything we do is fine. And our truth is good. As long as it makes us happy, then, then it's good by him. That God, this God exists only for our joy and only our happiness. And he exists as a genie at our beck and call to affirm our agenda, our desires, our purposes. On the other hand, you got others in another church tradition that they can't fathom such a scandalous grace. That kind of grace is too much for them to comprehend. They can't imagine a God that could love and forgive that much. So they, so they just pick a God that is full of justice and rage and anger and hates sinners. And you see them picketing on the side. God will send you to hell. God hates you. All this kind of hateful, angry language. See, the, the human heart has a hard time bringing both of these biblical realities together like the Bible does, and so therefore we often try to divorce these realities, but they're friends. But God, his love requires judgment. Let me say that again. God's love requires judgment because you really, you protect what you truly love, don't you? If you truly love your creation, if God truly loves his creation and he does, then he must do something about, about the wickedness of the world. But there lies the problem. Who's part of the ones making a mess of this world? 
I am. You are. We are. We all have made a mess of this world at a variety of different levels. None of us have loved God as we ought to. None of us has, have honored him and worshipped him and give him the first place as he deserves fully. All of us have wronged other people. All of us have marred the image of God on this earth. And so there lies a big problem. God, because he loves people, will judge people in justice. We're going to get to that more later. So here's a question. How would this wicked city respond? Nineveh, verse 5. Read this with me. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What? They believe God? This is one of the most unlikely revivals in all of history. I mean, it's one of the shortest, most pathetic messages of all time. They are so overwhelmed with grief of their impending doom that they stop eating and drinking. It's a total fast. They put on sackcloth, which is like this itchy material made from goat hair that symbolizes on the outward what's going on in the inward. On the inward, their hearts are ripped to shreds of, with grief for their sin and for their impending judgments. And so on the outside, they put on this scratchy junk that just represents what's going on the inside. And this isn't the case for just the poor, the peasants. It goes from the, the least to the greatest. From the rich, the poor, and everyone in between. Now note this phrase listed. The people believed God. Then after they believed, they called the fast and so forth. This is so, so important. True belief. True believing of what God says always is followed by action. Is always followed by action. True belief is always followed by action. This is something that has been lost in many churches. We have been fooled and deceived ourselves to believe that you can truly believe in something and it not affect the way you live. But none of us here operate our lives like that. None of us here believes that you can say that you believe something and then nothing about your life backs up that statement. None of us believe that. And yet, when it comes to our religion, when it comes to Christianity, we think that this is the one category we can have a complete, absolute contradiction of our words and our actions. Let me give you an example. Just an absurd example to help you guys all grasp with me how ridiculous this is that we do this. Imagine one of you guys came up to me while during break and we're like, hey, Sam, I'm in love with this girl and we're dating. And I'm like, oh, okay, ninth grader. All right, let's talk about that. <laughs> tell me about it. Hey, t okay, tell me her name. Uh, I mm, didn't catch that. Oh, okay, that's strange. But she's dating you? Yeah, uh, okay, all right. You really love her? Yeah, you, okay, all right, all right, okay. Uh, well, tell me a little bit about her. Uh, mm, I actually don't know really anything about her. Okay, that's weird. This is weird. This is, this is kind of a weird relationship. Okay, what do you guys like to do together since you're so in love with this girl? You know, Sam, I don't really like spending time with her. <laughs> right, so if any of you guys were eavesdropping this, this conversation, you'd be like, that guy doesn't love her? That guy doesn't like her. That's not a real relationship, right? Nobody here would be like, oh, yeah, he's so sincere. Yeah, yeah, I so believe in him. No, no, no. All of us here intuitively know that if you really believe something with all of your heart, that you're going to have action. And yet, we have believed such a lie in the churches that you guys can wear a cross, and you can be like, yeah, Jesus is the Lord, but he doesn't have to be Lord. It's all cool. It's cool. You, we can follow Jesus, but we don't have to follow Jesus, what, in what category, in any area of our life, would that fly? I'm a big fan of the Patriots. Who's our quarterback? I don't know, right? You're not a fan. No, I'm a fan. I'm sincerely, I'm a fan. No, you're not, right? But, but, but because we can't talk about religion or politics, that's like the holy grail. You, you, someone says that, you're like, oh, I can't touch that. Yeah, yeah, as long as you're sincere, if you say it, it means it. But, but, but we have no category in the Bible of such a thing. And because the Ninevites believe God's word, action follows. So the first step with repentance is believing 
the words of God, believing that you are wrong, that you are in trouble before a holy, good judge that must judge the Ninevites for their wickedness. And then only until you believe this, then can change come. Now, I want to make a slight aside about evangelism. See, I know a lot of us here, maybe you do really love Jesus, and you want your friends to know about Jesus. You want your parents and your family members or your coworkers or whoever to know Jesus. But sometimes we can feel so inadequate to share about Jesus. We can feel so scared. Well, I, I'm not eloquent enough, like Moses said. I, I don't have the right words. I don't have the right education. I just screwed up last week. I'm not holy enough to be able to share the gospel. And yet, when you think about the whole history of all mankind, who was more inadequate, disqualified to preach about God than Jonah. Was there anyone you could ever imagine? He didn't even want them to listen to the message. His heart is not in it. He wants them to die. <laughs> I mean, talk about mixed motives. The guy is wanting to sabotage them while he is preaching, and yet God does whatever he pleases, and salvation belongs to Yahweh, and he wants the Ninevites. And so for those of you guys who struggle with sharing the gospel, I'm not saying you shouldn't be godly. You should grow in holiness. I'm not saying you shouldn't know stuff. You should grow to know your word. I'm not saying you shouldn't grow to learn how to be clear and concise and helpful the way you communicate God's word to other people, but just want you to know that the word of God is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how good you are. And if that's the case, then you get the glory. I... If any of you guys have seen me this whole afternoon and right before I preach, I am in anguish. I am in anguish. I am crying at the side. And I'm not doing that because I'm nervous to stand before you. This isn't my first rodeo. Do you know why I'm in anguish? I know that I cannot change a soul apart from the God, Spirit of God working. Amen. And I know some of you guys are on the worst trajectory ever, and you are absolutely blind to it. And so I am just, my heart is just ripped to shreds on the side, just begging God for him to open up your eyes. And that's the kind of heart you have to, to have when you go before your friends and family members and whoever in your neighborhood sharing the gospel, knowing that you can't change a soul. You can't raise the dead. Only God can. And with that kind of heart of dependence, man, God can show up. But if you come and you're like, man, I just did my evangelism training. I know some stuff. I haven't screwed up with, with, with lust this week, and I've had devotions. I'm really strong, and now God's going to bless me and move. No, 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 no. Listen, God moves with or without your, your, your perfections and how awesome you are. So I don't care if you're an introvert or you're super young or new in the faith. If you depend on God's word, he can do mighty things through you. All right. Now, back to the text. That was a side. Let's wonder, how will this evil dictator respond to this message? What would an evil dictator typically do? You come to his gates and yell out that the whole city will be destroyed. What would an evil dictator typically do? <laughs> Kill you. How dare you? Verse 6. Read this with me. The word reached the king of Nineveh. What? The greatest king, earthly king on the earth at that time with the most power who has done unspeakable acts of genocide. He humbles himself. He takes off his symbols of authority, his symbols of power, of pride, and sits in ashes, ashes of mourning over his sin and his wickedness. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. This doesn't happen. Imagine if Trump or Biden did that. Imagine if Putin did that. That's a miracle. God can do that again. Would you pray that for Putin? Would you pray that God would humble him? Man, I'm praying that. Verse 7. And the king, read it with me, issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. This guy is so earnest, and oftentimes when kings 
are repentant, they, they kind of just go crazy. Uh, you see this with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. They just say outrageous things. He's even calling the cows to repent. <laughs> put, put the sackcloth on the cows as well. We want to cover all our bases. But what I see in the king, though he may be theologically misunderstanding some aspects of repentance, what I see in the king is such earnestness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about godly sorrow. And one of the marks of godly sorrow is that you just do not care. You just go overboard. And people actually have to be like, whoa, that's a little too much, right? He's just like, I got to go do whatever I can to get right with this God. And he's just calling everyone to repent. Don't drink food. Don't drink water. Don't eat food. Strip yourselves of all of your, your symbols of, of power and pride and humble yourself for God. Let's talk more about repentance. What is repentance? When you look at verse 5 and 8, it's a great breakdown of repentance. First step, verse 5, you have to believe in God. And so repentance, literally in the Greek, metanoia, meta, with, after, changing, noeo, you're thinking, your thinking is changing. Repentance is you're changing your thinking. God has changed your thinking. You're realizing you're wrong. You're realizing you need mercy. You're realizing you're in trouble with the God of the universe. And so the, the mindset, mindset shifts. Then the behavior follows. First is belief, then is the lifestyle. And then what happens? Verse 8, you call out mightily to God for mercy. And then you, everyone turns from their evil ways. And then in this passage, he says specifically, what does he highlight? What kind of sin? Do you see it? Violence. One of the marks of true repentance is being specific. Right? As a parent, I have to walk my kids through apologizing to each other on a daily basis. And one of the worst ways to apologize is, sorry. Right? So, okay, what, what, sorry for what? What? Sorry for not loving you well and being rude and taking that toy from you when you were playing, right? Being specific. One of the keys to true repentance, unless you really highlight where your error is, you're not going to be able to fully be healed and be delivered. And so often when we apologize to God, we just use some generic term. Sorry, God, won't do it again. Sorry, you do, won't, won't do what? Be specific. Repentance is like running, but in the right direction. Repentance is turning. The, instead of turning your back towards God, fleeing from his face, his presence, his intimacy, you are turning back. But to turn back to him, you have to turn away to what you are running towards. Right? So, so, so if you're holding on to another lover, another thing, you can't hold on to him at the same time. You have to let go, turn your back onto that which you turn towards, and turn and run to him. He will not share you with another lover. It's all or nothing with this Lord. And you know, that may sound kind of crazy to you, but would, would we want any relationship that's not like that? Would you want to be with a spouse one day or a girlfriend or a boyfriend when they were having side chicks on the side chicks and side guys? No, none of us think that's okay. God doesn't either. God wants all of you. So whatever you're holding on to, you can't fully repent and return to him if you're still not willing to let go. So you have to let go so you can hold on to him. Turn your back and turn and face him again. It starts with belief and then everything else follows. But what we see, listen, is that for a hundred years, a whole generation or so, Nineveh is walking in freedom and they're safe. But a hundred years later, they returned back to their ways. I don't know how long into that time, but they turned back to their ways. They stop, start going right back into violence and the wickedness of their whole old ways, and God does indeed destroy them and wipe them out with the Babylonians. It took a whole generation. But what does that teach us? What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us that we never stop repenting. We never stop repenting. Part of Christianity is being a repenter. You don't just say, hey, when did you repent? Oh, yeah, back in 98 when I went to Hume Lake, I repented. 
Then I was good. I got my fire insurance. Thank you very much. I put the thing in my Bible. I'm good. And now I can live my life. God heard me. No, no, no. The Christian life is continually repenting. Do you know why? Because our hearts are continually turning. If you guys have ever heard the song, he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so repentance ends when Jesus comes. Because when he comes, we have perfect hearts, no more sin. And so we never turn away from him, so we never have to repent again. But until he comes, our hearts are continually turning right back. We continually hop right back on the throne and try to take the wheel back. And so as long as that tendency of our flesh is there, we have to continue to run back to him. The danger is that every single person who falls away from God, it doesn't happen in an instant. It happens in a no here, a no there. God convicts you of something, a Nineveh in your life, and you say, you know, no, 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 no. It's okay, God. I'm saying yes is here. Just give me this one no. And eventually we start to remake God and start to compromise and, and give him our terms of surrender to where we re- remake God and that, that which he calls wicked and he says no to, we eventually trick ourselves, deceive ourselves that it's good. God's cool by that. And that's one of the great challenges many of you students are going to have when you go home from Hume, is that the devil in the flesh will try to deceive you that you did your thing. And when I was a high school pastor, I remember two students came with us. Our youth group wasn't very big, but when we went to Hume, we were huge. We had like 30 kids who never came to church come every year for Hume, and they would get their Hume on. They would come, and they would get their yearly cry on. And I remember on decision night, I remember sitting in the back, Hume Lake Ponderosa Chapel, these two huge football players who just joined us for the year, their yearly Hume time, they were just crying and crying over their sin. And I'm talking to them like, man, tell me what God's doing. They're like, man, it just feels good to get it all out. And I never saw them again. They just did their thing. And they walked away probably believing, man, I'm good with God. They deceived themselves to believe that, you know what, the Christianity is just a point in, in your history. You just do it one time and then you're good. No, it's a lifetime. I said this to the counselors earlier. When was the last time you gave your life to Jesus? And really, you should say this morning. Every day we say, Jesus, I give to you my heart. Today I die again to you. Listen, this is not a kill joy. God is not after killing your joy. This is actually the path towards joy. When we let go of our sin and hold on to him, we are holding on to life. The more you say yes to Jesus, the closer you get, the more you start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And at first, it is hard. It is hard. We love the world so much. We've been so discipled and shaped by the world that we think what the world has is lovely, but it's actually trash. And the more you say yes to Jesus, he renews your spiritual, emotional taste buds, and you start to see what truly living is like, truly loving is like. Now, verse 9, the king ends with this statement. Would you read this? Who knows? The king attributes fierce anger to God. Is he right to do that? Is he right to do that? Yes, he is right. He's understanding God rightly in this moment. God is angry and he should be for how wicked they are. But also notice he doesn't expect forgiveness or demand it. This, this king is not entitled like many in our culture. He doesn't think that God has to forgive it. He's saying maybe God will forgive us. Let's repent. He's throwing himself at the mercy of the king of the universe. He doesn't demand mercy. Mercy, if it's demanded, is not mercy. That's called what? Justice. Getting what you deserve is justice. Not getting what you deserve is mercy. He's begging for mercy because he knows what justice entails. True justice means all of Assyria suffers and is destroyed. They want mercy, but they know they can't demand it from God. Listen, God does not have to forgive anyone. Have you ever heard anyone say that? God doesn't have to forgive anyone. But you know what? He loves to. He loves to. Before we get to how... God responds to Assyria's repentance. I want to go into what I promised I will share with you. I want to tell you a little bit about the Assyrians. And I want to challenge you not to laugh. 
One scholar gives us some grisly details, and this is rated R. And I don't share this to you to move you, emotionally manipulate you, but just for you to know the, the w- wickedness of these people. The Assyrians, like many nations, would have a hall. And this hall would be full of, of different pictures. So whenever you would visit the kingdom, you're from another kingdom, you would see the exploits of their past victories and what they did. So before you could get to the king, you would, you would walk through a corridor of all these different records, and some of the records would show this. Um, they, they would, what they would do sometimes is, as they take over a city, they would play with their captors, captives by cutting off your arm, and then while you're still alive, mockingly shake your dismembered arm while you bleed out and die in front of them. They would take prisoners, they would stretch them out and then skin them alive and then take their skin and then stretch it out and nail it upon their city walls for all people to see your skin while you're bleeding out dying. They would take prisoners, decapitate them, take their heads, find a loved one and force that loved one to parade through their streets with their loved one's head on a stick while they had to carry it. And without getting into too many more details, they would sexually abuse little children, and then after they did that, they would kill them. Now, how do you feel about these people? How do you, how do you think how do you think the neighbors of of Assyrians felt about these people? How do you think Jonah and the Israelites felt about these people? Now, here's the biggest question. How does God feel about these people? What does God do towards these people? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What? Did God just hear what I just said? Has he not seen the atrocities of this people, the perversions of these people, how sick they were? These people didn't spend months earning their forgiveness, giving money back to the nations that they plundered. They didn't earn their way. How could it be that easy? Doesn't God know how evil they are? Yes, and even more than I know. How can God be this merciful? This is the God of the Bible. A God that has such scandalous, unfathomable, absurd mercy towards the most unlikely Wretched, wicked people. That's the kind of God that we know. That's the God of this Bible. You see why so many people conveniently forget the love of God and just focus on his judgment? Because they cannot stomach such a God like that. A God that would be so eager to forgive. God set so eager to extend mercy. Salvation belongs to Yahweh and he will do what pleases him. And it pleases him to extend mercy to a wicked people like the Assyrians. But this creates a significant problem if you think carefully. How is this just? How can a God wipe away the sins of such a wicked people? Can you imagine if your family was massacred and abused by the Assyrians and you heard about this kind of mercy, how would you feel towards God? You say, God, you can't do that. You're not a good God. You're not a just God. A just God would give them what they deserve, and they deserve annihilation. How is God just? Well, if the Assyrians don't pay the penalty, somebody's got to pay for it. And indeed, someone has. Now, I want to transition to a a courtroom scene in your head. I want to invite you to. And I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I, and I do that so you can visually imagine this. 
I know some of you guys don't want to, but I'm asking, would you do this? Out of respect to God and respect to, to just me asking you to do it. I know you don't have to, but I would ask you to. <clears throat> so here's the question we're asking ourselves. How, how can justice be served? How can justice, God be a God that is good and just when he lets go of such sinners? So imagine this courtroom scene. Because, but, but, but here the situation is different. It's not the Assyrians on trial, it's us, you and me. And the evidence is read about our life. Everything we've done that we thought no one else knew. Every thought, every wicked thought, slanderous word, perverse, lustful thought, angry, murderous thought, unforgiveness, every single thing, every selfish deed, all of, the, all of that is read in front of the whole courtroom. You are guilty of treason, of loving other things above God, of unjustly stewarding God's creation. We've idolized things over God. In fact, we fought to be like God. And the evidence is perfect. Unlike juries and, and lawyers in our day and age and on this earth, God knows every single shred of evidence. He knows it all. And all of the evidence is read, and you and I are nailed. We deserve to be punished. We deserve justice. And God must judge sinners if he is just. He must judge the Ninevites, and he also must judge San Choi. And he also must judge you for our rejection of him. Our lives that have lived in contrary to his ways. And if he doesn't, he's not a just and good God. He cannot let us go free. He cannot let the Ninevites go free. Someone has to be punished. But not just killed for our sin, because our sin is against the high king of the universe. Not just an ordinary Joe, but the king of the universe, the creator of the world, the lover of our soul. And because of that rejection, we deserve everlasting separation from him. And as that sentence is read over your head, the judge is reading the sentence and you're processing all the news. This idea of eternal separation from God and never-ending torments. And right before the gavel is slammed and the sentence is irrevocably sentenced, all of a sudden, the doors burst open in the courtroom. And then Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, bursts open through the doors and runs to his father before the gavel is slammed. And he speaks with the judge. And the judge shockingly orders the bailiffs to release you and me. And we're stunned as we watch them take off the cuffs of us. And then they, then they grab Jesus. And they grab Jesus and they put cuffs on him. And then they throw him on the ground and they start beating him and whipping him. And then in your horror, you follow them outside of the courtroom as he carries a giant piece of wood on his back and onto the top of a hill. And to your horror, the soldiers take Jesus and they nail him onto the wood, onto the cross, and they hoist him up in the air, naked and exposed and, and shamed. And Jesus makes eye contact with you and says, I love you. This is for you. And Jesus suffers there on that cross the full weight of the justice and wrath of God that is worthy for us, that, that we are deserving. On the cross, Jesus was treated like all he ever did was sin. And as a result, those of us who trust in him are treated like we never, ever sinned. Jesus on the cross is treated like he's the king of Assyria and did all that the king of Assyria ever did. Jesus on the cross is treated like he did every single wicked thing you and I ever did. What, who does Jesus save us from? He saves us from God. He saves us from the punishment that is due for us. And on the cross, Jesus drinks every drop of the wrath and judgment of God. Every single drop that is meant for you and me. And he did this because he loves us. And the Father loves us. At the cross, judgment and mercy meet. Judgment and love meet. God is both just and loving at the cross. The, the great paradigm, the great 
paradox of how good, good, just God be both loving and just, a good God be both loving and just comes together at the cross. This, this God who dies for enemies, a God who dies for those of us here who don't give a rip about him and are just living our own lives with no, no regard for his glory, no regard for him. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that no one here at the sound of my voice, has to be punished for their sins and be separated from God in hell forever because Jesus already was punished for you. So you can be forgiven and have peace with God. If, but, but, but here's the thing. If you're not trusting in Jesus and fully surrendered him as Lord, you are not safe from judgment. On the day he returns, he will judge all of the earth and all of the books will be opened and all that we did. And either we will stand on our own for our own sin or we will have an advocate, Jesus, standing in our place. And that's the only way you can be safe from judgment, the only way I can be safe from judgment. You can look up. In Jonah chapter 3, 9, the king of Assyria says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. But you know what the good news is? For us, we have a promise. We don't have to guess. Look at Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you may be saved. We don't know if you'll be saved. You will be saved. This is a promise, right? You can take it to the bank. You don't have to wonder and be anxious if God is going to hold his end of the bargain. He said he will. He's good by it. You can take it to the bank. His death is sufficient for you and my sin and all of our junk. Listen, every sin. I remember hearing about this one missionary in Papua New Guinea and him preaching the gospel for the first time. And I, I don't know why I'm even thinking and sharing this, but maybe this is for one of you here. He's preaching the gospel for the first time to a village. An old lady comes up to him at the end of the sermon, and she says, every sin, really every sin, he'll take every sin from me. And I just need to tell you that every sin, no matter what, no matter how wicked it is, because his mercy is more. The grace that is in Jesus is greater than the sin and wickedness in you and me. Every sin. And the promise is that not only will he forgive you of every sin, save you from the wrath of God that you and I deserve, but he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you a new heart, new desires, and then he will go to the crazy length of adopting you as one of his own ch children. It's one thing to forgive someone, but another thing to say, now you live in my house and be one of my kids. He adopts you with the blood of Jesus and your blood family. And then when Jesus comes or if you die, you get to be with him forever. And then when Jesus comes and we have a new resurrection of the earth, the kingdom of heaven will come down onto the earth and we will reign in a new heavens and new earth. The ultimate goal is not being up there in a the cloud, but actually it's going to come down here and renew all this broken, cursed world. And this is the gospel. This is the greatest news ever, and it's available for every single person here. Every single person, no matter your background, no matter your family background, no matter what you've done, it's for you. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice so it could be for you. So this is what we're going to do in a few minutes. I'm going to invite many of you here to stand and receive this forgiveness, to declare Jesus as Lord. So there's two kinds of people in here. I want to be very, 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 very clear, because this can be easily confused, and I don't want to manipulate or have anyone be misunderstanding. The first category is that you have never declared Jesus as Lord publicly. You've never publicly declared that you are a sinner in needing of a great Savior, needing in mercy. And if that's, if that's you, tonight can be your night where you can receive that mercy. And he will receive you. He will save you. He will transform you. He will forgive you. Like that. That easy. Make him Lord. And so what I'll have you do is that when I count to three, you'll stand up and shout at the top of your lungs. I mean your top of your lungs. Publicly. Jesus is Lord! That's the first category. The second category is that you are realizing as we've been 
walking in this camp, or maybe you've realized for a long time that you are fraud, that you do not love Jesus. I'm not saying that you are not perfect. None of us are perfect. All of us sin. All of us struggle. I'm not saying you had a bad week or a bad month, or you just need to you know, grow a little bit. No, everyone needs to grow a little bit. I'm talking about you're realizing that you have, maybe you grew up in church and you may play the game, but you're a Jonah at heart. And inside of your heart, you do not love God. He is not your first. He is not your king. He is not the love of your life. And you're realizing that if you were to die right now, you would be under his judgment, not under his mercy. And it doesn't matter how much you know the Bible verses, it doesn't matter how long you've been going to church, if you are not surrendered to him, you are not safe. You're not safe. That will be the second category of people. Now, listen, some of us have sensitive consciences. You're that kid who gets saved every time you go to camp. I'm talking about the person you're realizing that if you look at the trajectory of your life, that your pattern of life is that you are your king, that you live for your own glory, that you're a glory thief, that Jesus really isn't number one. I don't want to keep saying that over and over again, but I I just want to avoid people who just keep standing up every single time because they get caught up in the emotion, in the moment. But before you make such a statement in such a step, because this is a big step, because we're talking about getting off the throne of your heart forever and deciding you'll never get back on. And every time you do get back off, you, get, you uh, get back on that throne, you just jump right back off. Like this is a commitment to continually die and follow Jesus with everything. That means everything is now on the table for God to have. That means even your career. That means your sexuality. It means, means your past, your future, where you may live, your job occupation. Everything is free game for Jesus to take. That we're, I'm talking that kind of surrender. Not a, Jesus, you can have your little box in my life and I'll throw you a little tithe money here and there and put you in your place and you come bless my agenda. I mean, everything is the Lord's. That's the only kind of Christianity we have. Remember, I said this on the first night. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. This is the kind of Christianity, that the only kind of biblical Christianity that we have. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, would you read this with me? And he said to all, One time at Hume? No, daily. This literally means daily in the Greek. (laughs) So that's why it says daily. (laughs) But you increasingly live. Jesus increasingly calls you to the way of the cross, but in, in, in place of your cheap, cheap counterfeits and your cheap idols, he gives you himself. And he gives you his heart. He gives you life. And so listen, he may call you, to be single the rest of your life. He may call you to be a missionary and give up your comforts and your career dreams. He may even call you to lose your popularity or you'll never get popular if you're not popular. He may call you to forgive that one person who hurts you more than anyone else in the world. You may lose the respect and blessing of your family and you definitely will lose the American dream. I'm trying to raise the bar because I don't want you to get bait and switched. I want you to realize what this is calling you to so you can count the full weight. So Derek, if you could come out. Derek is going to come out from the band and just play on the keys. And I want you to close your eyes and just count the cost for a few minutes. Count the cost, what it means to, what would it look like to fully give Jesus and trust him and let God be God and stop trying to be God. Stop trying to hold on to your sins. Stop trying to live in your shame, but live in his light, in his love, in his lordship. And if you're too afraid of what people will think, your boys will think you're not ready. You still fear man more than God. But let me just remind you, your boys won't be there on that day of judgment. When you face him, when you see him face to face and all your sins are read, it would just be you and him, not your friends, not your family. It's just you and God, and I want you to be ready for that day. I want you, because there's two types of people on that day. When Jesus comes, there'll be one type of people, like me, by God's grace, that I'm going to say, finally, yes, you're here. Yes, yes, finally. The wait is over, you're here. And then some of you here are going to say, oh, no, you're real. No, it's, I need more time. I need more time. There won't be time that day. 
and I'm not trying to manipulate these tears or not manipulation. This is just this is my heart just breaking because I know some of you are so hard to God. You are still against him and you want to just do your own thing. And I'm telling you, tonight is the night. This is the night for salvation. God is giving you an opportunity. I don't know if you'll get another one. And if he's knocking on your heart, answer it, but count the cost. So for the next few minutes, let's just pray quietly as we count the cost. And then we'll, we'll make the call. What's the Nineveh that he may be calling you to give up? What do you need to let go so you can hold on to him? So with every eye open, just welcome you to look up. <clears throat> Loving, following Jesus is a private matter, but it's also public. You go public about those whom you love and you're crazy about. So if you want Jesus to be your Lord, you want forgiveness, you want mercy, you want him to be your everything, you want every sin forgiven. On the count of three, you'll stand up and shout at the top of your lungs, Jesus is Lord. So that's you. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord! So, so if that's you, just welcome you to stay standing. If that's you, Romans 10, 9, promises. You were saved. You could take his word. He paid for it. You are my brother and sister forever. We got the same father. We have the same blood of Jesus. You were forgiven. You were loved more than you could ever imagine. You're a part of my family. We're a family together. So praise God. So you just repented now, and then now you're joining the journey of never, never ending of repenting and turning and receiving more and more of his love and goodness and forgiveness. So for the rest of us, let's stand and worship and respond and singing his mercy is more with all of our hearts because he's, his mercy is indeed more. And so for those of us who didn't stand because we're already walking with Jesus, let's just celebrate that we have a God like Jesus. We can celebrate that he's so forgiving, that he's so patient.